Hi, this is Dustin Hobbs with the California MBA. Welcome to Connect, our monthly uh, podcast series featuring movers and shakers and uh, headliners in the industry. Today, I'm happy and excited that we've got an old friend here. We've got uh, Chris George, uh, President and CEO of CMG Financial and uh, Chair of the Mortgage Bankers Association. He's uh, been great to uh, join us here in California today. It's our actually our chairman's conference this uh, week, and uh, Chris has been uh, able to join us for uh, this morning. And I know he's had a busy couple of weeks, so I'm really excited to hear his thoughts on uh, where the industry is at and, and uh, what MBA is up to in D.C. Uh, before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, the uh, Real Estate Services Trust. So despite the recent drop in interest rates and the overall good economic news that we're seeing, 2019 is still a challenging year for mortgage bankers. And if you're an employer in the real estate services industry, you surely feel the constant pressure to remain uh, competitive against uh, firms looking to lure and and, uh, and retain and take away actually your seasoned employee. So with high employee turnover, costing businesses valuable time and money, you've probably already taken care of the, uh, the common strategies that uh, you can do to retain these employees. But the California MBA, we've got a great new uh, product that uh, you can use to keep your great employees and lure new ones. And that's through our Real Estate Services Trust or REST. So the California MBA is partnered with Marsha McLennan, a nationwide leading top uh, brokerage firm. And uh, we've created something that's brand new. This is actually our only our first year really of uh, uh, getting new uh, companies involved. It's a competitive employee benefits package that's provided to your employees. So we partnered again with Marsha McLennan. And the program provides small to mid-sized companies, uh, those with uh, 20 to 200 employees or so, um, competitive benefit plan options at affordable rates. And so by delivering a quality benefits package, you can attract and retain these employees that you want to keep. These are your top producers. You want to keep them. This is how you're going to do it. So again, I would suggest to click in the uh, description below to find out more about REST and find out if you can, uh, if it's going to help save your company money and provide better benefits to your employees. So with that out of the way, Chris, again, excited to see you. And uh, and it's been a while. Chris uh, was a former uh, chair of the California MBA. So it's, uh, again, Chris mentioned this morning, it's a, a homecoming for him. So I'm excited to find out uh, what's going on in D.C. But before we get into that, I always like to find out sort of the background of our, our uh, folks that we're interviewing. So Chris, tell me how you got to be where you're at now, how you you know started CMG, what's your background, and, and what uh, keeps you excited about the industry today? It's a lot there, I know. My goodness. Well, first of all, Dustin, thanks for having me here. It's, uh, it is feeling like I get to come home. The, it's unique to be able to stare into a room of a couple hundred people and know like, uh, you know, like 190 of them in there. And so great. <clears throat> these are colleagues. These are friends. These are folks that, you know, help me not only build my, my business, but uh, along the way, maybe help us preserve and save our industry. So it's been a real fun time to be here. Um, separately, in relationship to that, this is the 37th year. I've been in the mortgage industry. I started when I was 19 years old. <clears throat> I, uh, like most people, the mortgage industry sort of found me. I certainly didn't go find it, and I'm an accidental mortgage guy. And um, I loved uh, instantly the way that I was able to connect with people at a very profound level with the thing that was perhaps the most important decision, certainly one of the largest financial decisions that they would ever make. And I quickly learned that it was more than just about establishing wealth and um, beginning the process of establishing wealth, but it was really about quality of life. That people were looking at their homes, and many folks look at their homes as more than just a place to live. It's a, it's a point of freedom. It's a, the backdrop to every major event that likely happens in your home from the first day of school, the 4th of July, to holiday parties, to 
Christmases and weddings and New Year's and everything else in between. And so when I was going through the process of learning this um, as a loan officer, I still feel like in my heart of hearts I'm a loan officer. And as a result, as I was learning this process, as I was growing up through the industry, I started as a regular broker in Northern California and um, in the early 90s started becoming a mortgage banker, went down that path and ultimately got to where I am today. I felt like um, it was an opportunity for me to give back when I spoke to Susan about joining um, the board of the California Mortgage Bankers Association. And it was never really, frankly, my intention to do this. I mean, to be the, the chair of the MBA. And although it is humbling and it is incredibly grateful to see the industry consistency, there is a lot of good people, you know, from Alabama to Alaska, from New York to New Mexico, that are people around the United States that really have a passion for doing the right thing, for really have a passion for taking care of their customers. And honestly, a lot of us, them, have been doing it for a long time. So it has been an incredibly interesting journey to where I am today. I'm, I'm very grateful to have the, the opportunity to do this. And again, thank you for having me here. Absolutely. So it's funny you mentioned, uh, you know, CMG has been in, in uh, operation now for what, almost 40 years. Uh, I guess 26 actually. I actually been in the oh, industry. Oh, you've been in the industry. Okay. been in business for 26. I got okay. before CMG started. Although I guess you could say CMG. Well, that's true. Has been in the business for CMG Financial. What is it? Yeah, there's a play on words there. I guess. Absolutely. So okay, so uh, you know, multiple decades the company has been in business. You've been in, in business uh, even longer. So you've seen lots of ups and downs. Uh, I mean, obviously there's been some major challenges that uh, the industry has gone through. But, you know, I always enjoy finding out uh, from companies who have been through, especially the financial crisis and, and some of the you know, challenges even before that. What was the biggest challenge that you guys went through at CMG and, and how did you get through it and what tips would you have for you know, younger companies in the industry? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I hope that no company in the industry today ever experiences a housing crisis like we enjoyed or didn't enjoy in 2007, and 10, right? <laughs> Um, it's sort of like going through the depression. I mean, you just don't really know <clears throat> how deep is this hole. I mean, you just keep going further and further and further. And you either make a commitment to follow it to its end result and, and deal with whatever comes with that. Or you, you know, sort of tap out and say, you know, I'm going to be done with this and I'll come back in some other, some other time. We didn't really have much of a choice. Um, we were... We made some very critical decisions. There were people in our organization, uh, my executive vice president, Kim Callis, and my folks that were running uh, capital markets that saw pretty early that this was something beyond your typical downturn. And so we retrenched quickly um, back to California, even though we had offices all over the United States. And the other side of that coin was is that I think that back in 2007 and eight, if I was... Um, if I met you, I'd probably say, hi, my name's Chris George, can I borrow 50 grand? I mean, I just borrow money from everybody. And there are people watching this right now who, know, who are those people that thank goodness that they trusted me and lent me money and helped us get through those tougher times. But the thing I think that was really, for me, was really telling was what our core group of people, what, what they were willing to do to keep us alive. And what I mean by that statement is my employees uh, worked around the clock. My employees, um, for a period of time, went without a paycheck. My employees um, were willing to put in whatever amount of time it took in the month of December 
shortly after the United States government decided to start buying mortgage-backed securities. In the month of December, where we worked every single day of the month, and in a month we thought we would have a significant loss, we ended up making like $13,000. So to that end, if you're going to go through a battle, make sure you pick the right people to go through a battle. We happily had people that were willing to do whatever it took, and we're not going to give in or give up when really things got to a place where no one knew how bad it could be. And, you know, maybe that's a testament to our culture. Maybe that's a testament to hiring right. Maybe it's just a testament of people who just have the will to not give up. And that was a big component to how we made it out of that. Well, and, uh, you know, certainly, you know, you know companies around the industry. I know companies around the industry that don't necessarily have the long-term, you know, leadership team that you guys have had for a sure. long time that I think it sounds like that made a huge difference. Um, so, okay, so let's turn to national news. So national uh, uh, scene here in uh, Washington, here in D.C., uh, where you've been in D.C. <laughs> What's the uh, biggest issue right now that MBA is working on? What's the top priority for you guys? Well, you know, I, without question, the longest top priority, It's um, this is sort of like those things in sales, like there's not a singular number one rule in sales. There's like several number one rules in sales. So we have multiple top priorities, I guess is the way to say that. There's no question we're focused on GSE reform. And we have been, I make a joke that we've been talking about GSE reform since the late 1800s. And we probably are gonna be talking about it a little while longer because the problem itself is complex. And there are a lot of moving parts. And there are a lot of people that wanna have a hand on those moving parts and wanna have a say in the process. So that's all, that's all good. The difference is this time is that we need to make sure we get this right for the next 50 years and to be sure that we don't put taxpayer money on the front line of being potentially at risk and further preserving the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. And we don't want to tear apart or disrupt the marketplace today. So in a perfect world, if there were no Fannie or Freddie, no GSEs and we were just creating them, there wouldn't be that concern about the consistency of the marketplace. But the marketplace today is obviously dependent. On, on both the agencies and the continuation of a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. People build and have built their wealth around the consistency of their house payment. So that's pretty important. Secondly, what's also important is making sure that we reduce taxpayer uh, risk. And there is going to be, if the United States government has an implicit guarantee on the bonds and the, the securitization of these loans, the simple truth is we ought to put that taxpayer dollar way down on the risk channel side of things. So there should be other private capital ways of risk before you see taxpayer money at risk. And I think that whatever we build should withstand whatever the economic cycles are that come into play. Now, like I said, I'm not, I'm not anxious to resume that kind of downturn again, but there are so many changes we have done to the marketplace today that would prevent another 2007, 8, 9 um, crisis to happen. But I'm not going to potentially see that 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, there could be another crisis. And I want to make sure that this reform, as you talk about, can withstand all of that. And most certainly, and last but not least, I want to make sure that the people that the agencies were designed to help, those folks that are looking for affordable housing, those folks that are looking for entry-level housing, that the agencies are there to support the affordable side of this business. It is in fact a loan product for all Americans and it's an American institution, but that should not exclude those Americans that are at very low income or low income Americans to utilize this as a form of financing to purchase their home. 
And again, as I mentioned, it's a step toward wealth. It's even greater step toward quality of life. So it's a priority on the GSE side. There are a couple of other things we're focused on. It's clearly QM, Appendix Q. We want to make sure that those things get resolved permanently. There are, there's a sunset provision today about Appendix Q that's concerning to us. And if we don't fix that, we're going to go back to the Stone Age with respect to how we do um, underwriting guidelines and the processing of electronic, da electronic data. And then loan officer comp is critically important. I want to make sure that LO comp can be as flexible as it needs to be in order to be able to be contemporary with today's marketplace. And we're working on those things. Those are components that are um, uh, very important to us. And then last but not least, I think we have a pretty good chance of doing something with clarifying the False Claims Act activity that's been happening in the United States over the last several years, which I think is hindering to competition specifically around FHA. So those are you know three or four of the big things that are on our plate. False Claims that's a huge one. I, know I, I staff our uh, Legal Issues Committee and have sat in on more than, more than my share of uh, our uh, Mortgage Quality and Compliance Committee uh, webinars, and that's a huge issue. So that's that's great to see that there's maybe some movement there. So, I mean, maybe you've already answered this, but uh, if you could design your own GSE system, I mean, put Chris George in the driver's seat, and like maybe said, oh, if, gosh. You know, if you started from scratch, <laughs> what would it kind of look like? What a horrifying thought to let Chris <laughs> George be exclusively responsible for GSE reform. Well. I think I touched on a couple of those things. I think it should be more than just a duopoly. I'd like to bring some additional competition into play. I think that I'd like to make sure that we do not lose sight on the fact that there's a big picture. We're a very unique or a unique industry and, and uh, that we have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. I don't want that to go away. I would like to make sure that we don't um, disrupt what is currently happening and I'd like to make sure that we don't forget about the affordable side of things. I want to make sure equally that this gets done. We just can't sit here for another eight or ten years. It was ten years last October when the GSEs went into conservatorship. We can't wait here for another ten years. This We need to absolutely sit down and figure this out and I believe we can by the way. I don't believe there are things that we don't agree on a hundred percent but that's the whole process of of compromise and negotiation and discussion and making sure that we put forward a system that's world-class that will withstand any kind of downturn like we've had or maybe have never seen. And I think we're close to that today. I think today we're seeing activity from Treasury. I'm seeing activity from the administration. We clearly have a brand new FHFA director there. We're seeing activity legislatively. So I think we have a chance. And then, of course, industry-wide, we've all been talking about it. What's really nice is the NBA is at the forefront of these conversations. Many of the discussions that are being had about GSE reform utilize the priorities and the template of our white paper that we put out two or three years ago. So it's really nice to see that we have a possibility of doing something. Maybe it doesn't get done this year. Maybe we have to wait a few more years to get it done. I'm hopeful that we're going to make a big step toward getting it done. And I think it'd be nice to put that one to, to bed and focus on some other parts of our industry. Absolutely. So, well, you mentioned uh, compromise, and, and uh, it makes me, my immediate thought was, you know, Congress and the president right now, I mean, we're headed towards a, a presidential election sooner than I think everyone wants. Where do you see, I mean, you just came from D.C. at the uh, National Advocacy Conference last week. Do you see an opportunity to have some compromise before the uh, election? I see a window. I see a window open. I think that there is a lot of folks that are very smart about and understand this um, 
this complex problem more so than you might imagine. Mike Crapo uh, in the Senate, Maxine Waters in the in, uh, in Congress, uh, um, certainly Mark Calabria now at FHFA, um, uh, um, Commit, uh, Secretary of Treasury Steve Mnuchin, uh, Craig Phillips, certainly us on the MBA side of things. We understand and they understand the importance of getting this right, that we can't stub our toe here. And I really do think there's a chance. I do think that people have been saying, we're not that far off on a lot of things. Let's talk about the things that we all agree on, and let's get down to the ones that maybe we don't agree on, but we can come to some consensus. And by the way, everyone's at the table. I'm not just talking about us, the realtors, the builders, the American Bankers Association, the um, consumer advocacies, the housing counseling agencies, they're all at that table talking about things that are important to their constituency. And I do believe that there's a chance to have a legitimate conversation and get something done. Now, I'm an optimistic person at heart, but I think there's a chance we can get this done. You're right. There's a window that's going to close here. And pretty soon, we're not going to be focused on this stuff. We're going to be focused on election activity. But in that open window right now, if we work hard, we might get an opportunity to try and get something done. All right, well then, so I'm going to go off script for just a second. You can go um, anywhere you want. And uh, ask you, so you said so we've got a window here. What can people do, the average person watching here, what can they do to help? Well, certainly make your voice be heard. I mean, um, that uh, today there isn't really anything to vote on. There is no bill, there's no legislation happening. But what you could do is participate in events like these, like this chairman's conference, like things that, like the Western Secondary Conference or Technology Conference, and then of course the MBA conference like National Secondary and Annual, and the other ones that happen throughout the year. Whether it's a state MBA sponsored event or national MBA sponsored event, get your voice heard. So make sure that you are part of this process. Make sure that you're participating in the process. The second thing is, is be ready. So in addition to getting your voice heard, we got to make sure that we can make sure you're aware. And the way to do that, the easiest way to do that is signing up to Mortgage Action Alliance. If you sign up to Mortgage Action Alliance, we're going to tell you, we're going to send you a note and say, hey, something's happening. Now here's the opportunity for all of us to get our voice heard at the same time. But you have to be signed up so that we can count you, so that we can say now here's a time for us to be able to do and act. So be ready to act. And the only way I can make sure you're ready to act, it's simple, it takes like 15 seconds to it's sign up. Unbelievably easy. Um, yeah. You can be part of Mortgage Action Alliance. And then sit tight because there's a chance to happen. It's going to happen. I mean, I'm, when I say the window's closed, I'm talking like the next 90 days. This is going to, we're either going to do something or not in the next 90 days. And then we're going to wait for another election cycle to go through and then step back in and talk about it again. Well, then that, I mean, that's good motivation then for everyone to go and sign up for uh, uh, Ma today. I mean, it's the we'll, have, we'll put the uh, um, link in the description below to uh, sign up for mock oh, great. I mean, fantastic. it's a fantastic way to get involved. And in, you're right, it is so easy to sign up. And then when you get the alert about a, a, a bill that's that's coming up for a, a committee vote or on the floor, and I mean, it's like that to uh, send a message to your legislator um, and encourage them to either vote yes or no. So uh, it's fantastic. Um, so switching gears a bit here, um, looking at the CFPB, you mentioned uh, it's been you know, roughly a year now since uh, uh, Kathy Kraninger stepped into that role. Where do you see, where are we at with the CFPB? What's, what do you, what's your thoughts on uh, direction there and uh, you know, what lies ahead? Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, I've, <clears throat> I've had an opportunity to visit with the CFPB on a number of occasions prior to Director Kraninger and now since she's been on board. 
Um, what I like about what we're at today is that the, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau as an entity is maturing. So when it first started, it was set up, it was, you know, where do we go and what do we go do and how do we structure things? And there was a lot of change. I mean, keep in mind that the CFPB became responsible for disclosures. They became responsible for a lot of what HUD used to be responsible for. It all got dumped on their plate, including things like LOCOM and QM and others. So now that it, those, those big sort of watershed moments have occurred, the Bureau is really getting very good at listening to industry and starting to implement those changes that are necessary. Now, while that is in part because of leadership change at um, the Bureau, it's not exclusively because of that. <clears throat> leadership at the Bureau, again, took on different forms when it first was formed versus today. And secondly, there's a lot of people, rank and file, that have been with the CFPB since its creation. So the things are starting to sort of simmer down and I see opportunity to work with the Bureau to refine some of those things that maybe we didn't get right the, completely the first time um, when, was, when we were in the sort of the heat of the battle. Keep in mind, there's nothing in the United States that you can say we've gotten right absolutely and we've never touched. We've modified the U.S. Constitution and added stuff to it. So the most sacrosanct document in the world, or at least in our world, We've made changes to that as well. So we're revisiting some of those things, like I mentioned before about QM and Appendix Q, LO Comp and other entrid about areas where we might be able to make the experience with the consumer better, cheaper, less um, anxiety-ridden, and give them the opportunity to continue to do what they do, this, this oversight of the industry. There's not anybody, by the way, whether it's industry, whether it's um, uh, the regulatory regime of any bureau, whether it's the uh, CFPB, FHFA, or anybody else, there's nobody that wants to go back to the days where people could be not held accountable for bad behavior. Absolutely. We want that, they want that, we're both on the same page. What we want to make sure is that the regulatory aspect of things doesn't interrupt the ability to be able to deliver on a sound, a secure and sensible way for people to be able to finance, finance their home. And to do so, it's an interactivity of industry and the Bureau like we have today, which is great. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's, you know, years and years ago, I think there was a lot of fear that uh, industry wanted to blow up the CFPB and there's no appetite for that whatsoever. No. I think you just want some, uh, some clarity, you want some stability there, and it sounds like that's what we're in. So that's good. I mean, they are, I mean, if you think about it this way, many of the things, there are a lot of things that you could say, oh, I get rid of Dodd-Frank, and get rid of all those other things. There are things that Dodd-Frank, there are aspects of Elocomp, there are aspects of HVCC, TRID, QM, depending, all of that, that are really good. I mean, done really well, right? The bad actors that invaded our industry were kind of really difficult to come back and behave that way again under the current regulatory regime. That's great. Just don't want to simply say, well, it's one and done. We got to go back and look at these things and make minor adjustments to make sure that we continue with this world-class financing, housing financing is the industry that we have. Absolutely. So let's look at the, the market itself here. So at a, uh, you know, getting to the 50,000 foot level, um, back in October, the NBA's uh, annual forecast kind of, it, you know, flat, it looked like it was gonna be a flat year for the industry um, as far as volume. 
where do you see? Is that are we in the midst of a? Is it a cyclical thing more than more than a uh, you know sort of a, a government thing? Where are we at in the cycle? And and sort of give me your thoughts on on where things go. That well, I here. think your viewers and frankly the entire industry should say thanks to me because I've been running around the United States saying interest rates are going to go up, but of course they've been going down. So you have me to thank for that. But um, you know, well, on behalf of the viewers, <laughs> thank you, absolutely. <laughs> I. Uh, you know, it's it's very difficult to predict what the marketplace is going to do with interest rates. And even if you try, you never get it right. I think that the marketplace today, I think when I look at some historical samplings of things, these are the things I look at. We're in this very long period of prosperity, longer than any other period in the history of our country, where we are likely to see some kind of downturn. I think in certain parts of the United States, we are already seeing it. So inventories coming up, housing prices might be softening a little bit. And I think that, that leads, those are leading indicators of what might happen. When is that? Economically, when I listen to Mike Rattantoni from the MBA and other economists talk about a slowdown in 2020, 21, or 22, that I think logically, given this long term of prosperity, that you're gonna see some slowdown soon, soon, again, within the next two to three, four years, approximately. Number two, when I think about that as it relates to inventory and as it relates to our industry, you know, we have a very cyclical industry that when interest rates go up and as long as you have an organization that's focused on purchases, you don't get hurt very badly. If you're focused only on refinances, it's painful for you. When rates go down, you get an opportunity to refinance, and if you're focused on refinances, that's when your ship comes in, and then when you slow down again, you know, you have to kind of save up for the rainy day. So building organizations that focus on both purchase and refinance activity sort of bulletproofs your, your business plan, somewhat regardless of what happens. I do think I do think that the next quote wave you're going to see will be a technology wave. I think innovation is overdue in our, our industry. I think that what you're ultimately going to see is some of the technology, both on and offshore, being able to save our customers money to reduce the cost to produce per loan. And as that reduces down, I think we'll finally deliver on the message that we've been telling our consumers that technology will save them money. <clears throat> it already it already makes it easier to do a transaction. What I mean by that statement, even though you might argue that loans today are more difficult to do than they were maybe 10 years ago, the truth is, is that we're moving toward an industry where I can verify independently your income and your assets and your value, and I don't have to send an appraisal or a VOD or VOE out at all. That type of technology begins to take out the angst of the borrower, the borrower wondering if they're actually qualified, the borrower wondering if they're able to get that home. <coughs> so I think innovation is the next step. Yeah, well, and it was great. I was just I was actually in uh, uh, Dallas a couple weeks ago at the MBA Tech Conference, and I mean, the amount of new tech out there, it's amazing. And not just, just technology and, you know, and gadgets and apps. I mean, the innovation that's going on both on the front and the back end of the, uh, the uh, origination process is just fabulous right now. So really looking forward to that. So let's look at uh, something near and dear to your heart, uh, uh, the, uh, the state of the IMBs. Uh, CMB <coughs> Financial is one of the uh, top IMBs in the country. Um, they're more important probably now than I would say ever. I mean, with the uh, you know, sort of the commercial banks pulling back a bit from uh, uh, the industry, IMBs are you know sort of taking up the slack there. So what what's the state of the IMBs? What's their future? 
Well, I mean, <clears throat> the independent mortgage banker has come to rise during the turn down, the downturn in the marketplace, <clears throat> and it filled a big void when a number of the commercial banks decided that um, that they wanted to step back from lending. To some degree, some still are. <clears throat> the so I think what the next evolution for the IMBs are is to look inward and start talking about how to make sure that they are strong enough <clears throat> with criteria to make sure if there is a downturn in the market that they can withstand that. Things like what percentage of liquidity should they have in their organization? How do they function an internal audit program? How do they make sure that there are regular reviews of what's happening in their inside their organization to make sure if something were to happen, <clears throat> they're prepared for that downturn. The interesting thing about the IMBs is that the IMBs make up the vast majority of the lenders. More than 50% of all the lending that's done in the United States are done by an independent mortgage banker. <clears throat> At the same time, those organizations are fighting hard to deal with things like false claims, which in my opinion would allow large and maybe mid-sized banks to resume FHA lending because we solve their concerns and their um, uncertainty about whether or not they can make an FHA loan and not expose their organization to some kind of false claims act. So it's interesting that the organizations that benefited, <clears throat> that are out there doing the business, are also fighting for there to be more competition for that very business. And I love that. I think that's the, I think that's the way our industry has operated for years. And I love that I think at the end of the day, the reduction of competition is not good for the consumer. Yeah. <clears throat> but the more competition, fair competition, that exists, I think is better for the consumer in the long run. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it keeps every, all the, you know, keeps all the company sharp too. Um, absolutely, so I, I totally agree. Um, so one of the other, uh, I think, uh, big initiatives in the industry the last, you know, it's a number of years now, has uh, been the effort to increase diversity both in the uh, uh, within employees and within uh, consumers. So where, from MBA's perspective, from Chris George's perspective, where are we at with uh, uh, improving our, our efforts to increase diversity? Well, so the MBA um, a few years back created the Diversity um, and Inclusion Committee. It's such an important <clears throat> uh, committee that the inbound chairman of the MBA, so the chair-elect, chairs the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. So that's how important it is to the MBA. And we also think how important it is for the industry. So Brian Stoffers, <clears throat> who's with CBRE, will be the next year's chair. He follows me in October. Um, he's the chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. So places like California, Arizona, New Mexico, um, Nevada, Texas, those, those states <clears throat> are seeing the minority become the majority. And the consumers are interested in doing business with people that they trust and they're comfortable with. And so if you're not taking on a diverse view of your organization, <clears throat> then you're likely to miss out on a certain degree of business. I actually think that we're doing a better job from a diversification perspective. I think companies, <clears throat> I think our industry is becoming more diverse, more diverse from um, people of color, but even for more diverse from age and more diverse across um, the board. What's more difficult is inclusiveness. <clears throat> so diversity is the who, inclusiveness is the how. And it's hard. It's hard to be inclusive when you're talking about 
not understanding thoroughly at times how to be more inclusive either internally or again externally within the industry. That's a tougher lift. We're putting a lot more work together at the MBA to talk more um, systemically and more um, from a a practical way to be able to be more diverse but more inclusive in your organization. So a lot of times people come to conference and have these kind of big picture look, whereas we have a much more prescriptive look on how to go about being more diverse and more inclusive and giving a lot of real life winning ideas. So that's the change that's happening at the DNI committee at the MBA. It's ongoing. <clears throat> this was not going to go away. We're going to have to continue to work on diversifying our industry because most of the people in the industry look a lot like me, you know. I mean, you're <clears throat> an older white guy that's got gray hair, right? So, and while I'm probably not reflective of, of my customer base, a lot of the people that we have coming on board in our organization, a lot of the folks that are coming into our industry are more reflective of the folks that we serve. Absolutely, yeah. I, I also staff our uh, our future leaders program, and it is exciting to see what's happening there. Uh, so. It's interesting. It sounds like it's almost more of a, uh, when you're talking inclusiveness versus diversity, almost more of a, a culture shift versus just, you know, who you hire, an HR problem. And that's a great comment because it is a culture shift, but it's even, it's a mentality shift. So people, I think today people better understand in their mind, okay, I understand the value of being more diverse. But how am I more inclusive? And it requires you to sort of rethink about the ways you've done business before. And it can't only be the same way, well, you know, we're inclusive because of this. No, there are many other ways that you can be far more inclusive as a a company than simply following some two or three rules and then you say you're inclusive. It is a mental shift, though. It's beyond simply culture because culture is a derivative of how people think, right? If I'm if I think a particular way, then that's going to be the way I'm going to sort of run my company or participate with an organization. If you if you change that mentality a little bit, you can become far more inclusive in the kind of way that you work with people and work with your customer base. So speaking of the customer base, you can't go through a, an interview about the industry right now without mentioning millennials. I can't believe we've made it this far and haven't said the word millennial. So I'm going to say it now. Where are we at with, uh, uh, with the, the, I mean, they're the biggest uh, buying cohort now. Um, where are we at with as far as how they're changing the industry, changing practices? Are they changing practices or is are they sort of adapting to uh, the industry? Well, you know what they say. The millennials are running around like they rent the place, you know. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> the um, so yes, the millennial population represents this sort of inbound group of people that will likely be that underpinning of our industry, which is the first-time homebuyer. <clears throat> there is a smaller percentage of first-time homebuyers in this um, turnaround recovery, if you will, than ever before. In part because that particular generation is coming to the party a little later. My generation was buying homes between 25 and 30 years of age. I think the millennials are starting to look at this now between sort of 28 and 34. That's when their period of time was saying, hey, maybe it's time for us to settle down. <clears throat> I also think that the kind of homes millennials are buying today are not the same kind of homes that I was buying. And so that's changing the, the, 
the sort of the design of new homes, in particular around manufactured homes. I'll get back to that in a minute. So the point is, is that when I was looking to buy a home, I'm on that big yard, I can mow around the thing, you know, mow my yard. And today, I think a lot of millennials are saying, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to mow my yard. I want to, you know, go do something fun. I want to travel. I want to be with my family. I want to stay focused on that. I don't have to mow my lawn every Saturday and be, you know, tied to a yard, if you will. So what has that been doing with respect to the homes that we're building? So of course, you know, the, the urbanization of our industry continues when people want to move closer to where the downtown areas are. And there's a lot of uh, towns around the United States that are building up the condos and the townhouses and the rental units that provide you to be closer to that hub. <clears throat> Further, a lot of organizations are taking a second look at manufactured homes, in particular around being able to build affordable homes. Well, places like California, it makes it very difficult to be able to build an affordable home because the entitlement process of getting basically a, a lot to build on is so expensive that you can't build here. You've got to build up here. <clears throat> Versus potentially reducing the cost of construction by utilizing either a prefab home or a manufactured house. Both Fannie and Freddie are looking at a mechanism to make it easy to put manufactured homes on lots inexpensively and be able to finance them. That's a big step toward manufactured homes because difference everyone, yeah. you know, everyone, ah, nobody wants a manufactured home. <clears throat> when you think about building a home in a controlled environment, the way they build those homes versus building a home out in the in the outside in the weather, in the exposed rain. to the yeah. elements, a different deal, right? From, a, from an R rating perspective, from an R rating perspective, the manufactured home industry will say to you that our homes are better energy efficient and frankly utilize less caustic materials than a stick built home will be. <clears throat> so there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not manufactured homes are as, if you will, scarlet lettered as they used to be, number one. Number two, I think that what you're seeing is the millennials are far more interested in having the ability to shop, the ability to compare, and the ability to have certainty way earlier in the process. So they don't want to wait further into the process to determine that they're under that they're approved. They want that way up front. But every study I have seen says, yeah, I want that up front, but then I want an, ex an expert to walk me through the process. I want an advisor. And in many cases, not only that, as I want a counselor. So understand the difference. An advisor gets paid and a counselor doesn't care. They simply are going to be able to give you a broader view on what's going to happen when you become a homeowner. <clears throat> Some counseling agencies, a couple that we're working with, are looking at counseling beyond the close of escrow. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, most counseling ends at the close of escrow. If you took it beyond the close of escrow, organizations like Habitat for Humanity, for instance, takes counseling way beyond that close of escrow, you can allow someone to be able to have someone to talk to when a downturn occurs in their life, either a loss of income or some other change, a fence blows down, whatever. You have somebody to pick up the phone and go, okay, I've never done this, what do I do? And, and I, the millennial generation, perhaps more so than most, really want those participants in the picture so they don't make a mistake. So I think it is changing the way we do business, but I also think that they're far more thoughtful about when they're going to become a homeowner and how they become a homeowner. Yeah, they've, had, they've watched a lot with their uh, parents and, and family members go through you know, the financial crisis, so uh, that's interesting you mentioned that. Um, so I've got a couple more questions. I, I want to uh, you know, 
permit me some a bit of uh, self-indulgence between the both of us here, but let's just say that you're a, a young uh, um, uh, LO out there or a, an executive that you know isn't really involved with the NBA or in, in California with the California NBA. What would you tell them? I mean, if they say, what's the purpose? What's the big deal? Why do I bother getting involved? What am I going to get out of this? Well, you know, my first comment would be is, <clears throat> what do you want? I mean, in my... Are you simply passing through my industry? Are you simply coming here to earn some money and then go become what you want to become? Then that's okay, don't get involved. I don't want you to be involved, right? If this is your career, if you found the calling that I found, that are the people that work for our organization have found, if this is so meaningful to you that you can understand the emotional aspect of when a first time home buyer or um, a last time home buyer or a person who's just refinanced their house to put their kids through college or start a business or have a baby or all the other things that happen in the way of life. If those things affect you in an in a emotional, personal way, then you should be involved. This is your business. This is your career. The decisions that get made legislatively, regulatorily, are going to affect you. Most of the people in this industry <clears throat> like to have a degree of control. This is one of those industries where you can get your hand on the wheel. Get the hand on the wheel by your state association's advocacy day. If you're going to go to nothing, go to that. Yeah. If you don't go to that one, go to the national one. You'll listen from world-class speakers, and you'll have an opportunity to be able to get your voice heard, and you'll learn a ton. And what I always say is that the job you may be saving is your own. And if you're saving your job, then you're helping the consumer, you're helping the future homeowner of America because the future homeowner of America needs that loan officer, needs that underwriter, needs that dock drawer, needs that compliance organization, needs the appraisal, needs the notary, needs the title company. They need you. So don't let them down. Be involved. That's great. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the... Uh, the advocacy day. I've yet to talk to anybody ever who's you know sort of a first time person to attend either one of them that hasn't come back and said, "Wow, my eyes are opened." Oh. Uh, you know, I can't wait to come back next year. So I couldn't agree more. Okay, so Chris, uh, leave us. It's our final question here. Leave us with a. You're a super positive guy, I know. So leave us with uh, an optimistic note. What uh, What's the one good bit of news, uh, housing related, that we don't know, or maybe we're not following closely? <laughs> Well, I, I, maybe there's more than one. Um, I, think about, I think about the people that are part of this industry and the folks that are called to serve in terms of volunteer positions, the board of directors of the California MBA, your leader, uh, Suzanne Livingston, and the folks that came before her and will come after her. I think that this trade association, um, led by Su uh, Susan Malazzo and others, including you, Dustin, make for a better industry. I think that is incredibly optimistic. I think that at the national level, you have Bob Brooksmith, you have uh, Marsha Davies, you have Bill Kilmer, and you have a host of other people that are supporting this endeavor of making our industry better. Not just better for the participants, like me, but better for our end consumer. <clears throat> I think today, a borrower gets a, a much more disclosed in a better understood mortgage than ever before. And again, I've been doing it for, as you say, almost four decades. I think um, next, that the people that are in the industry <clears throat> understand how important their job is and are interested in doing it right. And when they do it wrong, 
they're okay with learning how to do it right, including being able to say, you didn't do it right, this is the right way to do it, follow these rules. I can't find anybody that says, hey, listen, <clears throat> no rules. What I can find is, just tell us the rules and we'll follow yeah. them. You know, I, and, and so I see that being um, very optimistic in terms of the mentality of people in this industry. <clears throat> and then lastly, and I think homeownership in America gets kind of a bad label because people say, you know, it wasn't the American dream, it was the American nightmare. Well, maybe, maybe we just did it badly. You know, maybe we just, all of us, maybe we just could do a better job and we are doing a better job. I think we're working far more so <clears throat> with coalitions like with the National Association of Realtors, the American Bankers Association, and the National Association of Home Builders. And I think we finally are all coming together for the betterment of our consumer, <clears throat> which is a very positive thing for people that are currently homeowners and future homeowners in the um, that are yet to be here, right? That our future homeowner is going to benefit from all this hard work. Absolutely. Well, hey, Chris, thanks again for coming today. Dustin. Appreciate you coming, and uh, you know, best of luck here at, at uh, in DC and NBA, and look forward to maybe seeing you next time you're back in back home in California. Happy to do it again. Thanks. And uh, go ahead and make sure to uh, subscribe to our channel here. Uh, click in the uh, uh, description below. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Connect.